0: I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Today, we talk with Tim Daly, founder of Ed Navigator, about his work with families who are largely underserved, helping them to advocate for equitable treatment and get around the all too familiar no's that they receive when asking for change or more information. Tim has 16 years of experience in public education, including service as an urban school teacher, organizational leader, and policy expert. Prior to founding Ed Navigator, he served alongside Ariella Rosman as president of the New Teacher Project. During his eight years in that role, TNTP became a leading source of innovative research and a respected independent voice on teacher quality issues. Early in his career, Tim taught social studies at Northeast Middle School in Baltimore. He holds a master's degree in teaching from Johns Hopkins University and a bachelor's from Northwestern University. Tim, hi. So nice to have you here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, It's actually, we just, Tim and I were talking downstairs. This is a continuation of a conversation that has already been started, and um, it'll be fun to catch everyone up. Um, So Tim is one of the founders of Ed Navigator. And maybe let's start there. What is Ed Navigator?
1: We're a nonprofit organization that helps parents navigate school and we, we do it often in partnership with employers who make this a benefit for their employees.
0: Okay, all parents?
1: All types of parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, we focus on uh, especially hourly workers, but we help parents of, of all types in all types of situations whose kids go to all kinds of schools.
0: Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about what's a good example of why parents need help navigating the school system and what happens when you help them?
1: Being a parent's just really stressful, and so there are things that come up all I, the I'm time. I'm sure nobody who's listening yeah. agrees with that. Right um, they, they, they come to us with all kinds of things. They're worried that their kids are not doing as well in school as they used to be. They're worried that the school that they're in is not the best one for them. They're worried about planning for the future. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes families have worries, even when their kids are very young, their, their kids aren't speaking as early as other kids are. And they think they might need, um, might need early intervention or help. And so those types of things that often they internalize or they just turn to family and friends to ask about, we try to give them somebody that has some expertise and can get them unstuck if they get stuck.
0: So when you're working with a corporate, um, client, Mm -hmm. how, how do they help you reach these parents Mm -hmm. and how do you know which ones to help or do they find you and what, what's the messaging around it?
1: Generally the, um, the way that we connect with the parents is is through the existing uh, benefits rollout process because all of our employers already deliver benefits to their employees. So they Mm -hmm. have some experience at communicating about what's available. And, um, and so we, we, um, we, we maybe couch it as an invitation. This is, uh, this is a chance to get expert help with education, mm-hmm. and it's being provided through your workplace, and so that you're encouraged to take advantage of it. And sometimes we get folks that seek us out because they have something that's top of mind. We work pretty hard, though, to continuously flag to parents the types of things that we can help them with because initially uh, sometimes parents think things are going great yeah. until they have a conversation with a navigator and the navigator asks a couple of questions and and then immediately the concerns start to come out that they.
0: So talk about this, because this I think this is a critical point that I certainly didn't understand um, before kind of reading your work and, and getting more involved in the public education system. What the data is pretty aggressive in terms of the number, the percentage of parents who think that their child is on Mm -hmm. target and the number who actually are.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, There's great polling data from an organization called Learning Heroes that's shown year after year that more than 90% of American parents believe that their kids are on grade level or above grade level. Mm -hmm. And that percentage is not different based on demographics. So uh, families of all races, all income levels. And that's kind of uh, um, surprising because we know that the actual number of students that uh, are performing on grade level is much lower, but right. also it's very different. Significantly lower, right? Significantly lower. There, yeah. are, uh, I, th- I would say, for uh, in in many communities and school systems, it's probably twenty or twenty five percent. And even in affluent communities, it's often fifty or sixty percent. Right. So it's not just low income families that tend to think their kids are doing better than they are. It's all families. It's
0: all families. And wh- why don't why don't we know how our kids are doing?
1: I think that's it's a complex question, but I, I think part of it is families love their kids and they see the best that they can do, yeah. and and I I get that. I oftentimes when when we read a report card with a family, we notice that if there's contradictory information, they put the most weight on the most positive. Mm-hmm. So there might be four quarters of of information about um, how a student is doing in math, and if they did really well in one quarter, yeah. that's that's the one that sticks top of mind. It's very human. Yeah.
0: Instinct. Yeah, I think
1: to understand parents, you have to. You cannot communicate with them or work with them if you don't understand that the primary um, lens that they have for everything is love, which is great. It's it's a good thing, not a bad thing. But it will it will color how they think about their kids. I think that it has become really complicated in um, in modern education to communicate student progress because the explosion of information Mm. has meant um, that it's often confusing for families. So just imagine that many uh, many schools give four report cards a year mm-hmm. and four progress reports a year. Mm-hmm. So that's eight different communications with data about every subject. Mm-hmm. They also give annual tests in grades three through eight in at least two subjects, but many states test in other subjects like science and social studies. So that's more information. Mm-hmm. And then... Most schools do what we call benchmark tests in addition to that. Those are tests that are given throughout the year that don't carry any stakes for the student but give the school a chance to track progress. And many times those tests are given uh, three different points in the year in both math and reading. Mm. So you now have a huge amount of information. We haven't even talked about parent-teacher conferences or notes home from the teacher. Right. I think it's easy for parents in in the midst of all that to... Um, get confused, or to assume that if there is a problem, someone's going to tell them. Mm-hmm. there when we talk to teachers, there are some reasons that it's hard to tell families that a student is struggling. One of them is they're afraid parents will get mad at them mm-hmm. and um, and they want to have good relationships with parents. A second uh, barrier is that uh, teachers will say uh, that they don't know how they could find the time or the resources to help a student get back on track. So, for example, if I told a parent, that her daughter is reading well below grade level, the first thing the parent is going to say is, "Can you tutor her? Can yeah. you spend more time?" What do with her? we do, right? Right. right. And, and sometimes teachers don't know; they don't have the bandwidth. They have so many students that are struggling at that level, they couldn't possibly give an extra hour a week to each of them, and so they're hesitant to raise a problem that they don't know how to solve.
0: So in that right, because it because you just then create a squeaky wheel, right? They have to pay attention to now, and and in the average classroom. So for example. It was just it was just shared at school committee that thirty percent of kids across the district are performing at mm-hmm. grade level. Seventy mm-hmm. percent therefore are not. Mm-hmm. So is that can I interpret that as kind of in our average classroom, seventy percent of kids sh- it should be communicated to their parents that that those kids are underperforming. Right, but you would create 70% of families in a classroom who would then become squeaky wheels, hypothetically, if you communicated that very directly.
1: Yeah, it would be 70% of kids across classrooms, but there's so much inequity in education that the high-performing kids tend to be concentrated in the same schools. That's a good point. And there's a weird... Um, there's a weird so it could
0: be 100% of my classroom is actually yes. performing.
1: Or um, even in some schools, it's nearly 100% of the school. Yeah. So uh, one thing that we've noticed is that every school has the capacity to deliver additional reading help to almost a fixed percentage of kids, 15 or 20%. Okay. So they're going to identify the lowest 15 or 20% of readers and, and put them into some type of intervention. Mm. In some schools, you might end up in that intervention even if you are reading pretty well because everyone at your school is reading pretty well. Uh. You just happen to be a little bit less successful of a reader than some of your peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that same student in another school would have no chance of getting additional help because in that school they would actually be at average or maybe even above average for that right. school. And you would have to be an extraordinarily low-performing reader to to get that help. Um, and so there we, we think of it as there being a universal standard. I think it's a very relative standard, school to school, classroom to classroom, or even community to community.
0: Interesting, so let's go back for a second. Talk about the creation story behind Ed Navigator. Was it these sorts of things that you were seeing as a teacher, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, how you evolved into working at Mm -hmm. TNTP and, and as you were a teacher first and then, and then what, what, what drove you to ultimately create this new company?
1: I think there were, there were two things. One was the, um, the frustration I had from when I was first a teacher and I wanted to be the best teacher that I could be for my students. But I also asked myself often, what is it really going to take for my students to succeed? Mm. And it wasn't just that we had to have a good day in class. It was that somebody had to be thinking about the high school courses that they were going to take when they left my middle school. Mm. I used to ask my former students to send me their grades every quarter when they were in high school. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. But when they did, I often was appalled by the classes that they were in because I knew what their academic abilities were. I knew that there was no reason that they should be in lower track classes that were not preparing them for college. And in Mm. a couple of cases, I contacted their guidance counselors to Mm -hmm. push them to change their classes. Um, And that always stuck with me, that uh, it wasn't, students didn't just need a good academic experience at one point in time in their lives or a family that loved them. They need to be able to make good decisions Mm -hmm. to navigate a very complex system. And they had to make hundreds or thousands of good decisions Mm -hmm. and to change their path or to stay on a good path.
0: Who was, so who was rerouting their trajectory?
1: That's interesting. I, I always thought that the system, the default Uh, kind of um, the default stance of the system was the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. And when you're a 14 year old student, if you show up at a large comprehensive high school Mm -hmm. and somebody says, you can sign up for the easy way or the hard way, a lot of students are going to say, I'd like the easy way. I'd like the way with less homework. I don't want to do things that are going to be super challenging. And it's unlikely that somebody is going to say to you, you're making choices that could affect the rest of your life mm-hmm. and you're probably selling yourself short. Well,
0: sometimes you just get placed too, right? Sometimes. Yeah. yeah.
1: Sometimes you you get placed. Um,
0: Do you find that um, kids get placed based on race or gender or I think special needs?
1: I or... think that's complex. All of those things are true. Mm-hmm. I think it's not as as explicit as that in some cases, though. I think that oftentimes you're placed based on what the system thinks you want how ambitious do they think you are hmm. how ambitious do they think your family is so if a even
0: a, though even though we know teachers' expectations are the largest driver of yeah, and the largest that,
1: predictor of I, performance i think those expectations are shaped by by what they see of a family what how often hmm. a family is contacting them what they think the family's own ex, uh, educational experience was hmm. um, there are some families that if a student has even a single B, the teacher's going to hear from them. And that's going to send a message like, this is a family that expects all A's. Mm-hmm. There are other families that expect all A's, but they just don't communicate with school as often. Right. The teacher may internalize that this is a family that is okay with a student getting C's and D's, and they may not contact the family as as quickly. And So I think there are different cues right. that get sent based mm-hmm. on social norms. And it ends up manifesting itself in massive inequity. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that, that that's anyone's intention at right. the front end. I think we end up seeing... Really negative patterns that are just absolutely intolerable, but they are based on the decisions of good people who think they're doing the right thing.
0: Yeah, it's more—it's more a systemic vibe, yeah, than than anything particular. But it would seem that Ed Navigator is actually you created it to disrupt. Yeah, that vibe.
1: Yeah, and part of it too, in addition to my experience as a teacher, was becoming a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been in education for a long time. My wife is an educator. Mm-hmm. And you would think that, that we would know what to do when it comes to our own kids. And one of the hard lessons is that all of us as educators may be experts about other people's kids. And then you become a parent yourself and you realize you are a complete amateur when it comes to raising your own kids. You've never done it before. You could have taught a thousand kids and taught them all well, right. but you've never. And, um, it's,
0: and it's the scariest thing you've ever done. Yeah. Because you only get to do it once. And it turns out everyone's rewind. scared. I mean, you must hear right. this
1: too. I mean, everybody, it doesn't matter what position they are in life, you get together with a bunch of parents and they talk about right. how freaked out they are about right. their kids and how anxious they are. I,
0: I had a conversation with my daughter the other day because she didn't like one of my decisions. and um I said to her, look, this is my first time.
1: Yeah. I have never right.
0: been a parent before. Right. I, I, like, I'm like i literally a little bit guessing and trying to use intuition and good right. judgment, but I can totally fail at
1: this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with a couple of colleagues that I've been with at TNTP for a long time, we all have kids of a roughly similar age. We started to look around and say, who's working on this? Yeah. Like, who, who is trying to make a, a, a way for parents to get really good advice and help? On this thing, the way that they get help, you know, on other things, like because
0: at TnTP you were more focused on teachers, right, and teacher performance, aiding teachers, the, helping.
1: The, the question that that we started with, and I think that carried us through for all those years, and continues to to animate what they do today, is what will it take for low income students to have access to really good teachers? Okay. It was very clear that they were not getting their fair share of access; they were getting far less access. Okay, there were a lot of reasons for that. And some of them were very um, implementation-based, like you just have to do a better job of recruiting teachers. You have to do a better job of selecting them. You have to do a better job of training them mm-hmm. and uh, supporting them so they'll stay around mm-hmm. for, for the long term. Mm-hmm. And so our original purview was to partner with large urban school systems and uh, and also rural school systems to uh, to improve those processes and along the way, we started to realize that policies played a role, too. And so we, we kind of thought of those things as being in tandem. It's partly execution, and it's also partly you have to have the right policies. Hmm.
0: Do, you, do you think um, we train teachers correctly? Like, no. like do wait, Okay. No. Was, yeah.
1: Why? I'm not sure. I mean, I know that sounds like a weird answer after all this time. Um, I, I think that they're, they're, it's, it's, it's actually a kind of a deep question because learning to teach – is such a complex thing. It's, right. it's very difficult to get good at teaching.
0: I can imagine. I probably can't imagine, but...
1: There, there are a couple of disconnects, I, I suppose, that I would point out. One of them is that most people who train teachers train them on the things that are most interesting to them as trainers. Mm. I think that is a fundamental problem. Um, as an example, you'll hear from, from novice teachers all the time that they were never taught things like classroom management, they were never taught how to get students into a line. They were never taught how to get a class settled for the first five minutes. These are things that teachers do every single day. Right. And I don't think in any other profession we would say folks don't need careful training on how to do that. No,
0: right. Like, well, because there's leadership in that. There's there's behavioral yeah. nuances that that one needs to understand. There's incentives. Yeah. yeah.
1: And okay. I would say that, um, that one thing that teachers get a lot of Uh, of trading on is instructional design. That's something that's very interesting to professors of education. It's Mm -hmm. a top. They're not as interested in classroom management. Another thing Mm. that that teachers consistently struggle with is assessment. um, There are a lot of teachers that don't have a a really accurate sense of whether students are mastering what's being taught or not. And that means that they move on before students have have grasped things. Well, then it
0: also gets played out in... the performance metrics that they're that they're sharing. Yeah, if that's they, right. Yeah.
1: They, they can share inaccurate information. And yeah. I mean, I would say the next time you're talking to a group of, of first or second year teachers, ask them how much training they've had on how to grade papers. Huh. They're gonna grade maybe tens of thousands of papers in right. their life. And most teacher education programs have no training on that whatsoever. Um, and so one of the reasons I think that we get this wide variation in quality is some people go out there and they learn on their own. They mm. find great mentors, they find great teachers in their school, they're relentless, and they get there. And there are a lot of other people that in the sink or swim scenario kind of sink.
0: So what's the buzz back at um, these institutions that are training our teachers? Are are they aware of these gaps in training? Is anyone doing anything to kind of reassess how we train teachers and rethink it?
1: There's been a lot of work on it. I would say the way that I experienced the conversation was usually – a kind of mutual finger pointing. The yeah. districts would point the finger at the institutions that did the training. The institutions would say, we're doing a great job, but these schools are so disorganized and they're so poorly led. There's only so much we can do. Huh. Um, I think everyone felt like they were doing their part right and the other folks weren't doing theirs right. as well. Right. Um, and you know, it, it means that this is the biggest profession in the country for people with a college degree. Yeah. A huge number of people try it. A yeah. lot of them do it for a few years and leave. Um, and that wouldn't be such a big deal if all the people that were leaving were the folks that weren't good at it. But one of the things that we discovered when I was at TNTP um, in doing a, a report called The Irreplaceables was that a significant number of the people that were leaving were actually amazing. Yeah. So they leave after five years. They could have taught 35 years. That means we have 30 years left on the table of amazing instruction. And instead, that person sold real estate.
0: Yeah. Well, right. Because those people can do many things. They're yeah. multi-talented. Yeah. And so they find, they find things that... I would guess are more comfortable or the environments are more inspiring. Yeah. Um, so 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 you were at TNTP and at some point you started to think I need to do something to help
1: parents. Right.
0: And and so talk a little bit about how that happened, what was the spark that led to Ed Navigator?
1: It had been kind of germinating for a while, and I had two colleagues, David Keeling and Audie Rosman, that had been at TP as long as I had, which was 14 years by the time we all um, started at Navigator together. You don't
0: really look old enough to <laughs> have done that, but okay. <laughs> we
1: we, um, we had a couple of questions. One one question was, um, what is what kind of help do parents actually need yeah. and one. And and secondly, um, how how would you deliver that? Mm. Um, we, we knew that schools tried hard to engage parents mm. and that they were often frustrated by how difficult that was. Um, so we spent a lot of time thinking about, about I guess, the, the mission that we wanted to take on. And we, we basically decided two things, that parents needed a trusting relationship. They didn't need a website to go to. They didn't need a database to look in yeah. or a guide. Yeah. Um, information was out there. They We're,
0: actually needed a bear hug and yeah, handholding. Yeah, yeah.
1: They needed a person, right? Um, that they that they, a relationship that would endure over time, and so that's how we conceptualize the idea of navigators. Mm-hmm. A navigator is somebody who's local, knows what they're doing, who's an educator, who is just on your side, mm-hmm. um, independent, um, and um, and able to see the world through your eyes.
0: And you train navigators very specifically.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, and we get great folks. We've been really fortunate with the the navigators that that we've hired. Mm. And the second question that we had to to tackle is, uh, why would parents trust us? Mm-hmm. Where where would we develop that relationship? We we kind of pictured ourselves like recruiting people at churches or like you know parent teacher nights at school, and we we knew that many of those things just didn't seem like they were going to work. Mm. Uh, those were and, and some of them I think have been tried in different ways before. Um, and maybe it brought us back to this question of why don't parents already engage the, the way that they, they might want to? And um, we spent a lot of time talking, a lot of time looking at research, and we kind of landed on this idea that almost all parents are working. Mm-hmm. And most of the time if they're not engaged in school, it's because they're at work. Mm-hmm. We had heard many times people throw up their hands in that conversation and just say, what can we do? If parents have to earn a living, they can't be at school it occurred to us that instead of working around their employment, we could work through it, That's and that if, if employers became the partner and were invested in reaching families and um, and getting them the support that we could we could reach them as often as they were at work, which is a lot of the time.
0: So, what does this do for an individual? So, so they they find out that there's this new benefit through mm-hmm. their company, and they sit down with an ad navigator. Right. And 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 now you've done worked with so many. Individuals, it's got. I would imagine it feels. I don't know, really good and really comforting to have someone sit across the table from you and hear you and talk very specifically about your child, and, and to feel like you have someone who um, is well educated on this very specific topic. I also wonder if it gives them more courage to yeah. interface with schools. I don't. But tell me, how how do you find parents using the the benefit, and and what's the reaction as they receive it?
1: As parents, I think we all like talking about our own kids. I find that I really love talking about other people's kids with them too. Mm-hmm. And so the conversation usually just begins with, tell me about your kids. Yeah, And it goes from there. You know, What ages are they? What have their experiences been? How do you feel things are going? You find things that you might want to work on together in the process of that. But the foundation of it is just, I'm really interested in in how this is going for you. Yeah, The things that parents often say to us after we've been working with them for a while is, um, number one, there was just so much I didn't know. Mm. There was a lot behind the curtain that wasn't visible to me.
0: So meaning, for example, you helped me look at this report card and now I understand what these right. numbers and um, yeah. acronyms mean. Yeah, yeah. and
1: I, I always thought that the, that things worked this way and you've helped me understand that I had other options mm. or that that, um, that we could change the way that, that this is going. The second thing that that parents say to us most often is, "I always thought I had to take no for an answer, yeah. and I, I had no idea that that there was a different scenario here." Where we'll give an
0: example of that where where a parent hears no and it's not actually no; it's something else.
1: Uh, we had a, a, a parent recently here in Boston who was um, who had a, a daughter with a, a respiratory condition, and the um, their their pediatrician had um, written a letter saying she cannot walk this extended distance to a bus stop. It's not healthy for her, and it could trigger health reactions. Mm. And the school looked at this and said, it doesn't meet one of our criteria for her to get an alternative bus stop closer to her home, Mm -hmm. so she's going to have to continue walking to the further one. And It didn't
0: meet the school's criteria, even though the doctor's recommendation was.
1: They gave her a a, a form, Mm -hmm. and they said does it check one of these boxes and i'm not making that up there's boxes and it said, you know like have they been hospitalized in the last x amount of time Do you turn blue yeah, yeah. Kind of things like that um and and um and, and that's you know it's they're, they're trying to follow whatever it is their yeah. processes as a parent you think well it didn't work you know yeah. like apparently even though my pediatrician says that my daughter's health is in danger this is not going to work out yeah and um and the navigator who got that letter said absolutely not. Right. Like we're, we need to have more. We, we, we can pursue this. And yeah. in a relatively short period of time, they got approval for um, a van service that picks her up at her front door and takes her to school. So okay. now she doesn't have this long uh, trip every day. I think that sometimes when parents get a resolution to that, there's a mixed uh, feeling of feeling really good that you got a mm-hmm. resolution. And honestly, sometimes a feeling of, um, of frustration or despair that, you weren't able to get that outcome on your own. And yeah. you see that somebody else who knows how the system works gets a gets different treatment, gets different reaction. Right. And you start to wonder how many things could could have gone different in the in the prior years if I had known this. Right. Um, and the one thing I'll say to I say this to parents all this time, I say to anybody, the system does not treat everyone the same. In right. fact, they treat everyone very differently. And you if you know that going in, you, you can hopefully not let that stop you from getting your child a great education.
0: Yeah, and are we allowed to dig into this? They don't treat you equally, and they judge you by what?
1: All kinds of things, honestly. They, um, they certainly judge you based on what they think your socioeconomic status is, your level of education, mm-hmm. your level of power. Mm-hmm. Um, many, many times people sort of think this conversation is going to end with the two of us. So if I, as the classroom teacher, if I, as the dean of discipline, say no to you, that's going to be the end of the conversation. Um, So um, you say that your child has special needs that require these types of supports, and I say she doesn't. And so, therefore, she's not going to get those things. A lot of parents don't realize that there are places that you can go to file a complaint to escalate that issue. Right. As soon as you do that, you will find that the conversation changes. Right. That when people realize they're not able to just kind of put up a roadblock right here and end the conversation, right. um, they are more um, willing to kind of um, you know engage with you and maybe find a different solution. So I think that's, that's one um, place that we see it. I think that um, sometimes when the social capital of the folks working in a school is dramatically higher Mm -hmm. than the families that they serve, it creates an imbalance. So you have um, educators that have college degrees, they have middle-class salaries, they have really good benefits, maybe educating families where very few people have any of those things. Mm -hmm. And I think that it can cause a problematic dynamic I think the reverse is true too. I think there are times where the social capital of the families in a school is dramatically higher than the teachers, okay. and it can lead to condescension on the part of families.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with I agree with both of those things. I think it's really important, though, for any CEO or corporate leader, especially in Boston, who's listening to this, because you're so deeply embedded in Boston now, to to think about the impact of that. I mean, effectively, you know, there there are a set of privileged ind- individuals who can really um, Force issues, get around no's. Um, and, and you see their kids in successful schools partially because of this strong push and these strong expectations. Mm-hmm. And that all that it takes oh. is the ability to apply those exact attributes to different scenarios in different cases to completely turn the tides. Right. right? So, so, you know, with this corporate benefit, it actually could impact the success not just a child and a family in the education system, but ultimately the education system itself. I think it's a pretty extraordinary effect.
1: It it, it brings so many things together because the reason people go to work every day is to earn a living and put food on the table and make life better for their family. And what is the good of all that if their kids are not on a path to a good future.
0: Right. Because every in that, and I think that goes to expectations, right? Every parent wants to believe like mm-hmm. the 90% who believe right. their kid is do it is on par or, or doing better than expectations is of course be right. Cause every kid's supposed to, we're in America, yeah. we're all supposed to be doing better than right. our parents did. That's, that's the American dream. Yeah. And to see that broken at some point in course, and then not to like what to hear that no is no, and there is no other trajectory right. for your child. Um, can be completely disheartening and the results are our current Mm -hmm. public education system. Um, So Carrie Rodriguez uh, was on a little while ago and we were talking to her about you. Mm -hmm. She loves Ed Navigator. She's a huge fan. It sounds like you've worked with some of the parents in her organization. She said one of the most important things she's learned from you is to simply ask her, uh, her kids, teachers are, is my child, Performing yeah. at grade level, yeah, and and most people, I I don't know that I've ever asked that question very specifically, but yeah. it's 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 tell me why that's such an important question.
1: Because it's yes no for one, mm-hmm. um, and and being on grade level is a is a meaningful standard. It's not like saying is she doing well in math? Well, sure she's doing well in math. You can kind of use these these vague euphemisms. I would give some credit um, for that question to a friend of mine named Hannah Scandera, who is the uh, state superintendent in New Mexico. And she told um, my colleague Audie and I a story when um, we were getting Ed Navigator started about being in the Big Brother, Big Sister program Mm. in New Mexico. And so she went to the parent-teacher conference for her little sister, and she was one of the best students in the school. Her report card was incredible, and the teacher kind of just went on and on about what a hard worker she was, what a great attitude she had, and um, how happy she was to have her. In, uh, in class, so it was all positive, and, and the student was beaming, and her mother was beaming. And Hannah kind of paused at the end and asked the question, like, is she on grade level? Yeah, Yes or no, because she had seen the data and knew she wasn't. Huh. And the teacher sort of paused and like ad- admitted, no, she's not, but that hadn't been brought up at all. It wasn't something that was proactively offered and changed the nature of the conversation and change the the nature of the family's outlook, which is we're doing a lot of things right. Right. Our daughter is is uh, is is has so many things going for her, but she also has the right to know whether right. or not she's mastering this material. And it stuck with us that you sometimes have to ask things explicitly yeah. to get the truth. Yeah. And I cannot say uh, to parents how how important that is that you shouldn't be afraid to ask you have the right to know mm-hmm. and if you don't ask you can't assume you'll be told
0: but yeah that's so interesting and and i think you know part of it is what you said about the d- teachers not being trained to deliver that kind of information it's always better right to create a happy environment during these interactions and everyone leaves and everyone's feeling good yeah. it, it's hard to talk about difficult things like yeah. your child is not performing yes. at grade level what um well, what other things are there? Other questions like that, you know. So, for example, um, I work with a student in, uh, who's in high school in BPS, and um, his mother and he, even and and a tutor that he's working with, all were noticing that perhaps he had a learning disability, but no one in the school system, mm-hmm. you know, felt that. And and so I strongly encouraged his, his mother and the tutor to advocate for him. It ended mm-hmm. up that you know he went through a, a neuropsych, and he, he mm-hmm. did have a learning disability. Are there things like that that you know? Are there are other direct questions that either you have gut instincts around, or they're just important questions to ask that very directly of teachers and administrators?
1: One question that uh, we often uh, pose to uh, educators is: What kind of support does the student need in the home to mm-hmm. uh, to thrive? The reason it's a, it's a different question than saying what kind of support does this student need in general is that oftentimes then you're talking about school and the school will say, no, we're doing everything at school that we can do. If uh, you ask what they need at home, you will get a different answer. So you'll hear you need to read with her, you know, for half an hour every night. And right. then you can follow up and say, well, why is that? Well, it may turn out she's not on grade level. Um, hmm. You may hear you need to spend more time monitoring her homework because she's not turning it in. But by framing it as something that I, as the parent, am volunteering to do, you will get more information Hmm. than if you ask um, about about school doing something. Um, When it comes to things like um, special needs, parents should know that they don't have to wait on school. They can request an evaluation for their child. And oftentimes schools will say, no, we can't do that until we've done all these intermediary steps. Hmm. But you can just write a very simple letter that says, these are the reasons why I believe my child needs to be evaluated, and I would not like to wait for mm-hmm. all of those steps. And mm-hmm. under federal law, the school needs to to complete a process to at least investigate whether the student needs an evaluation. Um, so those kind of things that are those are rights that nobody is likely to explain to a parent, but exist. And so I would I would say to a parent, don't be afraid to ask. It's your child, right? right.
0: This is so extraordinary. So so um, so that's a lot of um, discussion around um, determining issues that right. could exist. And then does Ed Navigator also help to solve problems? So as you help parents understand, understand where their child is, um, especially if I hear that my child is underperforming, my next question is, well, what the heck do we do? Right. And so what the heck does one do? <laughs>
1: um, we, we set goals with every parent and the most important thing to us is that it, it is goals that the family embraces for themselves. We don't tell them what their goals should be. Um, and um, we follow their lead, as opposed to us being, um, I don't know, some sort of a form of intervention for the family. Sometimes schools think of us as like a social services organization that would go and work with a family that's struggling. But the truth is, our families are are the source of the strength. They're not the, uh, it's not us somehow um, coming from on high and helping them. Right. So they choose the goals, and we work towards those together and, and track them. Um, I, I would say that it's important to us to have a really sound basic foundation of um routines and strategies that that help keep a student on track or get them on track if they're not and what I mean by that is they should be in a good school that is safe and academically rigorous mm-hmm. and if they're not, we should be doing something to change that
0: you know here in the city of Boston I think something or you know there's there's a a big number of schools that are being assessed mm-hmm. assessed currently by the state which would lead me to believe that they're Well, we know there's a a huge number of underperforming Mm -hmm. schools in the city of Boston. If you are sitting with a a new client and um, you understand that their child is in a school that is underperforming, what do you do?
1: We rely first on the experience that a student is having in a school. I think that there are there, there are certainly general impressions that we have of schools. This one is really strong. This one's struggling. Mm. But we have students that are thriving in a, in a school that, that actually is generally struggling. And so the, the student is fine there. They don't need to move. They're having a good experience. Academically, it's working for them. Mm-hmm. And so we wouldn't say, just because the school has a bad grade on it or other students that we've worked with had a bad experience there, you should move. Okay. Likewise, we have um, students that are in so-called good schools all the time that are not getting good instruction It is not a good fit for them hmm. and that they may need to move. So we, we try to treat each student situation as as, um, as unique Very and different. Very specifically, okay. In classroom to classroom, schools differ quite a lot. Um, and uh, for you know for all sorts of reasons. So I would say that we we try to use the knowledge that we have to inform parent decisions and make sure that they have the best information available, but we also don't um, apply really general information to a specific instance where it just doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and for students that are are behind, one of the things that that we try to, impress upon parents is that there are no shortcuts and no like quick fixes to an education. It's a marathon, not a sprint. You're right. going to be working on this over time. So, um, a student who is two grade levels behind in reading is not going to be on grade level in two weeks if they just buckle down and do their homework. Mm-hmm. It's going to take time mm-hmm. and persistence. So what we think about is the whole calendar year in the summer, what are they doing? Their are opportunities to be academically engaged in reading. We think not just about, are they, um, regularly reading at night, we think a lot about what are they reading and how. So, uh, for example, many parents are not spending time reading aloud with their kids once they're, say, seven, eight years old or older. They think, oh, the kids can read on their own. But It's a great time to continue reading with their kids and to read more complex things that are a bit of a reach. Right. And it gets kids more engaged. Parents, when they hear that, are very willing to do it, but they're often surprised. And then they'll say, Okay, what should we be reading? Should we be reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid? Yeah, yeah. I think that's good. My kids like Diary of a Wimpy Kid. That's probably not the read aloud that I would choose when, uh, when a parent is reading with a child, just because it's a fun book. But there are other books that I think are a little bit more substantive that would stretch a student's vocabulary and their understanding of plot and their understanding of structure a little bit more. And so right. we have lots of recommendations for families along those lines.
0: Huh? That's, do you publish those? That's terrific.
1: We, you know, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know if we publish them, but for every grade level, we we do a set of recommendations. And in the summer in particular, we work with families to give them recommendations for books that we think are topical, that have diverse authors, that reflect uh, things that kids are likely to be interested in, and also that are really good. And I'll say, since you and I were growing up, adolescent literature has gotten so much better.
0: Uh, it has. But man, there is a lot of stuff that is tough to take. Yeah. Like my kids, the stuff that they want us to read together inevitably has me crying. And they think oh, really? it's like the fu- And yeah. they're like, I don't know, they're more yeah. hardened than I am or something. Yeah. But I can't take <laughs> A lot uh, of it. But you're right. It's it's very well-written stuff. It's great stuff.
1: Yeah. And I will give a shout out to the library system. In the internet age, I think sometimes we've forgotten that there are institutions full of really smart, knowledgeable people that want to give you yes. books for free. Yes. And if you show up at a library <laughs> and say, I need some really good books for, for my kids, they will give you some books to take home at no cost. Use your local public library. Yeah. It's amazing.
0: I totally agree with that point. Uh, maybe, maybe for the blog that goes with this, we can publish a few yeah, a, for each grade that, that yeah. you would recommend. Um, okay, and so and so, um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, the the parents who are using Ed Navigation services. They're using them right now in New Orleans, Los Angeles, and Boston.
1: New Orleans and Boston.
0: New Orleans and Boston. Okay, and are do you, are there differences amongst the needs of those families? Are there differences amongst the way students perform in both of those cities? What,
1: I would say yes and no. Our uh, families really run a gamut. So in, in New Orleans, they live as far as 90 miles from downtown New Orleans. So we have families in... Who or, are,
0: whose kids are going to school in?
1: No, who we support because we, support. we okay. support students wherever their families happen to live if they're with one of our employer partners. Okay,
0: they just travel a, a long ways to go to work. Yeah, but we... I
1: mean, one of the employers that we support in New Orleans is a, um, a factory that's 60 miles from downtown. So, okay. so we really do have a, a pretty... It's more regional almost than, than just city-based. Um, we have families in every type of, of situation, all types of schools. And that's true in both New Orleans and Boston. Um, we, yeah, we, we, we have you know folks who are executives who um, make, you know, one of the top salaries in the organizations that they're a part of, and we work with an enormous number of frontline employees who make something around a minimum wage. Mm. Um, so it really does run the gamut. I would say, um, there are more similarities across families than differences. Yeah, I think that, that maybe demographically they're different, maybe their experiences are different, but I actually find interacting with them to be much the same. They love their kids. They want to find solutions. They're all stressed and tired, yeah. and they want to know how we can do something better.
0: So when you, as you think about growing the organization, it it makes sense to me that you would want to kind of go deeply into each city or region because it helps you understand mm-hmm. that region. It, but you know, based on what you're saying, is it pretty easy then to go into a new city because the str- you have to you have yeah. to learn the players, you have to learn the schools. Right. You have to, there's probably some nuances to it. But I mean, how do you think about growing the organization and serving um, folks kind of nationally? Mm-hmm.
1: It takes some work for sure to learn the local landscape. That part is usually not prohibitively difficult because there's so much publicly available information. now mm-hmm. on schools, you can look up. Um things now, parents have a hard time deciphering that, but navigators do that all the time. So it wouldn't matter. I don't think if they were looking at information on the um, school performance in Louisiana versus, say Texas or Florida, I think they would they would be able to adapt pretty well. Um, there I think it probably for us is more important that we, learn to adapt to the employers that we're working with because each one is different and mm. we we have to integrate into their workplace these are very different settings we work with hotels we work with universities we work with healthcare organizations we work with manufacturers right and i think that part if if we can be a useful and productive component of uh, of the workplace and if we understand their needs and and we can get them to understand how we can be useful i think it's a great relationship that part allows us to reach the families and be successful If we have employer partners that believe in this and will sustain it and do it over time, I think we can be successful. We could be amazing for families, but if it doesn't work for employers, we can't grow.
0: And what are the metrics they use to judge a navigator on?
1: Different ones. So Some of them are very interested in how it can help them retain workers longer. Mm -hmm. And, And we've shown really good outcomes in the hotel industry at increasing the longevity of workers and reducing turnover. Some of them are, are very interested in being the employer of choice in their industry. They mm-hmm. want their employees to say, this is a great place to work. I, I recommend it to everybody else. I love being here. They yeah. really care about me. And I think some of them care about productivity, you know, they, that you can be focused at work and fully present in um, and, and on task. And, and w- the first thing that parents will tell you is that they can never have their entire focus on anything Mm -hmm. and none of it on their kids Mm -hmm. always some part of it is there and we we try to be a support that allows them to confidently focus on what's in front of them knowing that they have a partner when it comes to education
0: that's interesting and um when you you kind of said you know between the administration of school and the schools themselves and do you as you work with families across both of these cities i would imagine you've assessed a pool of what could be recommendations for the school system on how to present information, um, what sorts of supports families could really use? I mean, because a, a lot I think about our current su- superintendent who really, she spent a lot of time visiting all of the schools and I, has a strong intention to really be a partner to families. And so what advice would you give the Boston Public School System, for example, just on what they could do to be kind of more present, more available, and more specific with parents to sort of loosen up some of this thing that you know this this friction that that, that right now you're you're intervening in.
1: Yeah, I, I'm going to give maybe a two part answer to that. That that may seem like it's like a, a contradiction in part. I think there are things that schools must do better. They have to be more welcoming to families. I strongly recommend. To districts that you do the equivalent of secret shopping in your schools and have somebody hmm. who just looks like an average parent walk into the school and see how they're treated we do it all the time because we walk in with parents and i, I tell this to all my friends who run schools it's not good huh it's not good uh you oftentimes, and, the, and
0: you know when it's good yeah because we, we walk into schools all the time when we're when we're either doing my way cafes or we're about to plan one and you are so right that the vibration of a school can be
1: People are so happy to welcome you and what do yep. you need and all that kind of thing. Um, the average parent does not get that. Yep. The average parent gets what no, do you need? No, I didn't get that either. Just yeah. by the way, is that right? Yeah, no, no. You, yeah. you,
0: you can. It's very easy to just discern how it's going to go. Yeah. It, you know, by walking into the school, some it, of them are extraordinarily cheerful and embraceive, and some of them because no one knew yeah. who I was, and or that I was some, attached to my way cafe until I and you know got my way into the principal's office. So yeah. I it agree with you. It can
1: be like walking into the Department of Motor Vehicles and in some <laughs> cases. And what I would say to schools is 100% of your schools should be welcoming. Mm. Um, we work with, with hotels, and the idea that one of our hotels would have somebody working the front desk who welcomed a guest that way, they would it would appall them. It right. would never in a million years uh, occur to them that you could have somebody who's unfriendly, unwelcoming, and unhelpful. Uh, it'd be the first point of contact. And when it's not the in. intention. It no. wouldn't
0: be the intention. No. Yeah. Um,
1: but but it really does happen, and I think yeah. some of it is is um, it's is stressful. Um, hmm. I think one other thing I would say to schools is please stop defining parent engagement as parents coming up to school when you tell them to. Mm. Parent teacher night is great. Um, the back to school night is great. Parents coming up for, for conferences is wonderful. But that isn't how parents define engagement. Their engagement is 24-7. It's getting their kids out of bed in the morning. It's putting food on the table. It's clothing them. It's being there when they're sick. They're engaged all the time. And when schools say, we only got this number of parents to come up here, it's it's often through this lens that engagement only happens when you show up when I tell you to. Right. Um, and I would say parents would, if that's how we define engagement, then why can't they define it as um, their their child's teacher or principal showing up at their house like if it's about showing up places right. then why you know it is always one way it's yeah. always parents need to show up I would say um, think of parent engagement as um, anything a parent is doing to further the mission of the child thriving and find out how to work with whatever constraints a family may have a, a classic instance that we see is um, like a, a school will say let's have a meeting on a weeknight. And they'll say, don't bring your other kids, and also we have no child care. And then they'll wonder why parents who most of them have multiple kids can't make it to that. Right. I wouldn't go to that. Right. Um, right. I would not get a babysitter, to be honest, to right. go up to a, a meeting at school right. at 6 o'clock on a weeknight. And I love my kids, and I think their education is the most important thing in the world. Yeah. But. Well, uh, I don't right. think I'm alone in that. No,
0: and you're right. And it's classic marketing 101, right? That you have to meet people where they are. Yeah. They're not. I mean, I remember the early days of the internet and people started putting up retail websites and they couldn't figure out why no one was shopping. Right. It was like, no one's walking by your store. Yeah. Right. right. Like they, they, you need to figure out yeah. ways to get them there and you've got to go find them where
1: they are. Um, this is part two of my answer though, which is I I also think that we should um, cut schools a break to some degree and recognize that they cannot do parent engagement alone. This isn't what they're good at. They're Mm -hmm. good at student stuff. Teachers are great at building relationships with kids. They see the kids all the time. Mm -hmm. They they get kids. Like most teachers have a great way of relating to kids in the age group that they Mm -hmm. work with. They're not that great at the parent thing, and I get it. Like, mm. the parents aren't there that often, especially as, as students get older, the parents don't go up that that frequently. Um, well, and
0: dealing with adults is very different. Than really adults. different. Yeah.
1: And so I guess what I would say is um, instead of saying schools, you have to be good at all the other stuff you're already good at, and you have to get good at something else that you've really never been All that good at, which Mm -hmm. is probably fairly difficult. Mm -hmm. I think maybe my my point of view has evolved a bit to say, can we partner with schools to relieve them a little bit of this and do some of the parent engagement stuff outside of that, which is kind of what we do. Right, we are good at the parent thing. We do get them; they're responsive to us. We hear from parents on average ten times a month. I don't think most schools hear from parents ten times a year. Right. So I think one of the things that we might want to consider is um, is how we can let each entity do what they do best and not put more on educators in schools than they may be able to reasonably do.
0: Do you find that the families that you're working with see a significant difference in um, the success of their child in school once you start working with them?
1: They do, and we we think of it particularly at the one-year mark. I think it takes a year to go through an entire cycle. So Mm -hmm. we've done a back-to-school. We've done a first-parent-teacher conference of the year. We've done multiple rounds of goal setting. We've done a summer together where we make sure that a family signs up really early for an affordable summer program that's rigorous and rich and multi, um, multi-purpose. I think we, we kind of feel at that point that a family should be able to say, this is different now. My mm. child's getting a different education. We've done some things together and we've gotten some wins. In the long term, that's, the, that's what we care about. We care that families love it and that it, it makes them feel differently about school. We care that their kids are doing different in a measurable way, and not just academically, but but they are thriving socially, they're thriving physically, they're thriving emotionally. And we we kind of we go through an entire inventory on those fronts, and we care that um it, that it's uh, effective for our partners, for the employer partners, and and I think honestly, if all three of those things aren't true, I don't think this is a scalable thing. I think all three things need to work.
0: All right, and they're working.
1: We think they are. We have great results year after year. And as we've grown, the families have, we, we kind of were afraid that that scale would make our attention more scattered and families would be less satisfied. That hasn't happened. Mm. Um, we we have a great group of employer partners and they have stayed with us year after year. Many of them have grown um, and, and they have measurable results in many cases to point to where the money that they put into this program, they're more than recouping it in terms of uh, reduced uh, uh, turnover, they also say, and we can show them, that, that employees have a totally different opinion of their employers when they're offering something that's relevant to their kids like this.
0: So beautiful. Thank you very much Thank you. for joining us today. I appreciate my pleasure. It. It's great to see you. Thank you. Thank you for joining my conversation with Ed Navigator founder Tim Daly. I found his recommendations for our public school system on how to think about and treat parents fascinating. Also, you can find his recommendation for what to read with your own kids on our blog. I'm going to try to pick one that doesn't make me cry. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.